I, uh, I just want to say what an honor, again, it is for me to be in your midst. I, I know uh, many of you, many of you, I certainly would not. Uh, things change over 17 years. Uh, one thing that has changed is the missions conference has gotten way better from when I did it. So Jim and the staff have done a fantastic job. And I thought, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I think of that? They're such a, doing such a great job. And uh, I want to commend you and give you greetings from the church where I pastor uh, in Hong Kong uh, and invite you to come worship with us in Hong Kong sometime. We currently have an extra bedroom in our home, and so uh, we would offer that to you. And uh, if you can make the usually 20-hour trek to Hong Kong, the least we can do is put you on our, uh, our extra bed. But um, we, I serve at a church called Island Evangelical Community Church, um, a church plant from a church creatively called Evangelical Community Church. Uh, it is on the peninsula, and we are on the island. And uh, it has been such a joy to serve there for 17 years. We never dreamed we would serve there for 17 years, and now we can't see an end to it uh, and don't desire to. Uh, we left here uh, having signed a three-year contract with that church, but in our minds thinking we'll go five because we're just committed that way. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, the, you know, 17 years later, we are finding ourselves right in the center of where we believe God would have us and uh, just honored to be serving. But there's so many things, uh, and in all seriousness, so many things that I learned here uh, that God would use uh, to teach me in formal ways and mostly organic informal ways uh, that have uh, been deposited in me as a pastor and as a leader and uh, have been used in a context very different than Memphis, uh, but nonetheless similar in that we are seeking to know God uh, and to make him known, uh, to honor him, to know what that means in our marriages and our families and our workplaces. And, and uh, so I just want to say a massive Thank you. And a, a greeting to all those who I may not be able to say a proper hello to. Um, it is really good to be in your midst. Um, I want to make sure I've got the slides working well. This is my uh, family. Uh, my oldest daughter, Abigail, is with me. Uh, my wife, Shannon, definitely the better half, uh, is uh, home taking care of our youngest son, Zane, who is 16. And so we have four kids, girl, boy, girl, boy, boy. Abigail uh, is getting her master's in uh, Baylor University um, in Houston, Texas. And Hudson is in Sydney, Australia, uh, a third year at Hillsong College. Mary Grace started Purdue uh, first year. So we have three kids in college, no money at all. And uh, our youngest, Zane, is in, is in high school. And so um, we just send you greetings and uh, this is taking, taken on a boat, not our own for the record, uh, in Hong Kong Harbor, <laughs> in case I need to qualify that. <laughs> um, I'm assuming you, um, let's see if this is working, there we go. You know this, do you remember this? Those of you who have kids, you might be familiar with this Where's Waldo kind of uh, uh, quiz or test. Uh, it looks something like that, right? Page after page of very detailed, colorful drawings, and the task is to look and to find uh, Waldo. Where is he? 
And he's always looked strangely like the beach towel right next to him or whatever. And it, it adds an added level of challenge to figure out where is Waldo. Uh, it's a childish game, but it's a fun thing for adults uh, nonetheless. Several years ago, uh, someone gave me this book that I really like. It's called Where's Jesus? <laughs> and it's a similar format uh, with drawings, and you have to look really hard to make sure that you find uh, where Jesus is. And, and on a more serious note, um, we want to ask that question of ourselves. Where, where's Jesus? And sometimes we may know that answer intellectually in our minds. We could spew out something that is satisfactory. But uh, the experience of where Jesus is might be something we long to have in greater measure. We read the news. You hear reports of ISIS. You hear these tragedies going on throughout the world. And you think, where it's Jesus. There's glimmers of Jesus. There's resurgence here, revival there. There's things happening. But, but for me, right now, right where I live, we want to ask, where is Jesus in my life? Is there a way that I can experience and know him? Is there a way I can kind of ramp up my Ability to follow, to sense, to hear his voice. Where is Jesus? For many of us who have been in the faith for years and years, there's always that danger that we kind of rely on past knowledge, past experience. That we assume that what we are experiencing is all that there is, and we go through the motions, we talk the language, we can do all the right things. There's no hint at all that there is any distance between Jesus and ourselves, but if we really evaluated, took inventory, we might conclude that he's been relegated to a belief system that we adhere to, rituals, routines that we do, but day in, day out, the experience of the nearness of God being our good may prove to be somewhat elusive. And so this morning, I want us all to just ask that question of ourselves. The danger of a missions conference, I presume, is that there's people that are already committed, they love missions, they support missions, they pray for missions, give to missions, they are missionaries, they're the convinced. And then there's the others that are just listening, like, I'm not going, there's nothing you can say, I am not going, and if that's your agenda, then I'm just going to listen politely, but I will not be moved. My, my thinking is that most of us probably will not be moved, I pray some would be, but that all of us need to experience the fullness of God, and that we are all not just at a missions conference, but we are all on mission. That our lives are designed to have impact, purpose, meaning. That wherever we are, whatever we do vocationally, that that is really secondary to this ultimate umbrella call that we have to make sure that we line our lives up with the purposes of God, that we sense that we are used by him. That is his will. That is his desire. Oh, he may or may not ever move you, but to be used by him is not optional. 
So where is Jesus? Oops, went too far. In Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews, if you remember, it is written to a group of completed Jews, Jewish background who had come to a new faith in Jesus Christ. They're Christians now, but have Jewish heritage. Uh, But the great danger was that they would look back to all the things that were comfortable, the rituals that they knew, the the way of doing life, the customs part of their heritage, that they were reverting back to some kind of twisted form of Judaism, that they were reverting And so the author of Hebrews, who we're not quite sure who is, most unlikely it is not Paul, uh, but the author of Hebrews basically writes from a Jewish perspective to a group of former Jews, and he in essence is saying, stop acting like a Jew. (laughs) Don't go back. Go forward. Your faith has taken you to places that are new. And so we find him writing as he wraps up the book in Hebrews chapter 13. Let me just read for you. Verses 11 and following, he says, alluding to Old Testament principles that they would have been so familiar with. He says, the high priest. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own own blood. He wraps up this whole book by talking about the role of a high priest. Remember in the Old Testament? Yes. The high priest, they would would take these animals and offer them as as a sacrifice, but it would be done in a location outside the city, outside the gate. And then he will tell us, let us then go to him outside the gate, outside the camp. And he gives us this command now, in light of all that we know, in light of our present identity, he will say, if you want to find Jesus, then let us then go outside the camp. Metaphorically speaking, he will allude to a place where we can find Jesus, somewhere out there. He's not saying that Jesus is not with us everywhere at all times. He's not in any way implying that God is not omnipresent, omniscient. Uh, But he says, if you want to find Jesus, this is where you need to look, outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. Outside the camp. It's a phrase that we find used three different times throughout this book of Leviticus. My guess is you have not been spending a lot of time studying Leviticus. When you read through it, you think, oh, I'm so glad for the cross, that I'm a New Testament follower, that the blood of goats, that all of this is a big not applicable to my daily walk with God. Uh, But tucked away in books like Leviticus, we get great richness and understanding our position in Christ, all that has been accomplished on our behalf, what it means for us to, to not have to do all that the law prescribed in that time. 
In Leviticus 16, okay, my apologies, I am clicker ignorant, so we're going to try this, click, maybe Sound Booth can help me, there we go, is that it? 16, there we go. Okay, Leviticus chapter 16, let me just read these words for you. Uh, The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most highly place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp, there's that phrase again. Their hides and flesh and intestines are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. And there's this allusion to being outside the camp. That's where all of this filth needs to take place. That's where this sacrifice needs to occur. That's where the carcasses will remain. That's where the animals will be burned because no one wants the stench in their city. No one wants the smell next to their home. So we're going to do it out there. That's where the dirty place is. And we're going to learn as we extract from Leviticus these three different places where outside the camp is used, uh, uniquely what the author of Hebrews will tell us where we can find Jesus. Well, well, there's no sacrifices now. So we go outside the camp now. Where exactly is it? But here we see that it is, it's a place of filth. It's a place, a dirty place, we might say. And we know then that there's a unique way in which we experience Christ when we choose to leave what is comfortable and convenient, and when we go to places that are filthy, undesirable, that press our buttons, that make us uncomfortable, but we have this great love for a sterile life, don't we? You might remember there was this disease called SARS. Does anybody remember that? 2003, it was a while back, but uh, it, was, it was horrible in Hong Kong. It's where it began. It was a transmission of, of uh, germs from a cytic cat uh, living in proximity to people. If you saw the movie Contagion took place in Hong Kong, all scary medical contagions movies are in Hong Kong because there's so many people packed on top of one another. But during SARS, the government said, we recommend there be no meetings over 300 people. They didn't forbid it, but they said it's not wise. We thought, well, we can't shut down church. So we handed out masks, (laughs) and people would wear these face masks. We researched the best ones that passed on the fewest amount of germs, and can you imagine what it was like for worship as all these masks were just kind of puffing in and out, and you couldn't actually hear their voices? Uh, There was articles in the newspaper about how to recognize people by their eyebrows and their eyes, because everybody looks the same. Black hair, mask, (laughs) It was hygiene was all important, and at that time, every elevator button, and in Hong Kong, every building has an elevator, every elevator button was covered in a sheet of plastic with a comforting note on it that said, this will be sanitized every hour. It was at that time that 
I stopped hitting elevator buttons with my finger. I haven't done it since 2003. I have this way of hitting it with my knuckles, thinking somehow at least if some nasty germ gets on my hands, it's less likely to get in my mouth. (laughs) I just don't chew on my knuckles. (laughs) We all want to be clean. There's all sorts of articles talking about uh, the spread of children's diseases now being because they are too clean. They don't play in the dirt like they used to. And I know there's all sorts of opinions there. The point is, is that if our lives are sanitized, is that if our faith is always tidy, if we're always among people that think like us, talk like us, act like us, then then we will never be forced to be messy and to realize that life is complicated, that the world is wounded, and that our hearts need to be beautifully disrupted with messy environments, with dirty places with places we would never imagine going that make us uncomfortable and no one will ever demand that we go. But it does something good to our spirit to have our feathers ruffled. In Leviticus 13, we see another example of this phrase outside the camp being used. Leviticus 13, verse 45 and following says, Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. Let their hair be unkempt. Cover the lower part of their face and cry out, Unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Leprous people had a path, a prescribed way in which they would be treated, a place where they would live so disease would not be spread. And it would impact not just their medical condition, but their social environment as well. Ostracized from everyone, they should live there. We live here. They are outside the camp. And now we're told in Hebrews that to find Jesus, that He's there. He's with the difficult people. It's not just dirty places, but it's it's difficult people in which we can find a freshness, a a reminder, a, a, a spirit of Christ that exemplifies itself that we may not see among those that are easy to be with. But it's hard, isn't it? Because I like to be with people that are like me, that think like me, that value the things I like, that talk the way I talk, that watch the movies I watch. It's just so much easier. It requires so much less energy. But here we're told, if you want to see, find Jesus, then you need to be with difficult people. You need to be with people unlike you, racially unlike you, economically unlike you, socially unlike you. It's perhaps why Jesus said, hey, if you want to have a dinner party, don't just invite people that are going to return the favor. Don't just tit for tat. Come over to my place next weekend, yours. 
Oh, that's fine. He wasn't vilifying fellowship, but he's saying invite those who can never do anything for you. Reach down, reach over, reach across, inconvenience yourself, and intentionally surround yourself with people that are difficult. You know why? Because when I'm with difficult people, I see my desperation before God. I see anew the fact that I need him more than I think I do when I'm with people that talk like me, look like me. It's harder. It requires more effort. And so it takes me to a place of dependence that is healthy, but not always desirable. God, I need you. I don't even like them. We have a citywide prayer meeting once a month in Hong Kong, and it's, it's beautiful. It's all the pastors from international churches come together. There are 62 international churches in Hong Kong. Most of those churches would be under 100 people. But it's extended to all of those pastors, and usually we have 20, 30 people that will come to that citywide meeting. It's beautiful. It is wildly charismatic and high church Anglican smells and bells. It is everything in between, all in one room praying. And you can see this clash of theology and this give and take of like, okay, that's important. Okay, you can talk that way. And it's, it's great. And, and I love these folks. If there's 20 there, I usually like 19 of them. Because there's this one guy, oh, and he wears me out. And the minute he sees me, he comes running to me. And and I try to see him before he sees me and dance around the room appropriately so I don't have to engage because I know it's going to be a long, drawn out, slow conversation. He's going to say, let's get together. And I'm going to say, okay. I don't want to, but I need to, because it makes me see my flesh, my heart, my love of self, my love of convenience. I'd like to meet with who I want to meet, when I want to meet. I'd like to be in control of that, really, and he messes all that up. Difficult people. It's a good thing. Oh, I understand boundaries. I understand all of that. But most of us really need to be nudged in the direction of being inconvenienced relationally, don't we? To say difficult people are a good place to be. Continuing on in Leviticus uh, 24, there's another use of this uh, phrase, verses 13 and 14. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside of the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him. Isn't it good to live in New Testament days. (laughs) Outside of the camp is where blasphemers were stoned. Where those who didn't think like we thought they should think should be put to death. 
That's the place of that tragic end. That's where it is to occur. And the encouragement for us, the admonishment to us, is to to not just be in dirty places or with difficult people, but also intentionally go to dangerous settings. To place where danger is real. Oh, danger can come in all sorts of forms, right? It may not just be physical danger. I'm not advocating irresponsibility at all, but to step out, to take risks, to put ourselves in dangerous situations and to see if the fear that comes along with that, the trust that is built in that, allows us to smell and see and touch God in ways that we otherwise wouldn't because sanitized faith does not experience the depth that God wants to reveal. But we don't do that unless we're intentional about that. We don't move beyond our comforts unless we see the value in getting outside of those comforts. And so scripture tells us that we need to be willing to be moved, to be moved in ways that are dangerous, to to give more than what is reasonable or in the budget or allowable, to be lavish in our generosity to go to dangerous places, borders, people groups, things where you, you don't feel comfortable, you don't like the food, you don't even really like the people, but you're hoping that you'll experience God there because there's life to be found. Most of us need to have our faith beautifully disrupted. I know I do. I can get in a zone of doing what I do, knowing how I do it, doing it fairly well, because I know where to go to get this done and that done, and I've become more proficient at my job, but possibly less dependent. And as we mature and get better at life, what a tragedy if we don't get better at faith. If, if our financial independence, our social independence, would somehow undermine our, our yearning to be wholly dependent upon God, how tragic would that be? And so we've got to offset that magnetic pull. We just do. Hebrews goes on to say, For we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. A reminder that this is temporary, that we are passing through, that this is not our home, and that whatever pushback we may give or objections we may have to this notion of being in dirty places with difficult people in dangerous settings, uh, it somehow is placated a bit when we realize, oh yeah, this is just a season. We do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. I'm going to share real quickly as we wrap up just a few Stories from around the world. And thanks, IT, for helping me out here. I have royally messed up this clicker action. 
in Albania. It was while I was here as a missions pastor that I went to Albania. Anyone been to Albania? (laughs) There's actually two people. It's not usually like a honeymoon destination. (laughs) It used to be, some 20 years ago, the most closed country in the world. Some of you may remember that we at First of Van, we hosted an Albanian girls basketball team. Anyone? They came here. We did a a, a tournament here down in our gym, and we had families in our church host these girls from Albania, and it was awful and wonderful at the same time. Because in the middle of the night, we had several of these girls have contacts in the U.S. that came and picked them up, and they fled, never to return, leaving us as a church holding the bag with immigration, trying to explain why we contributed to illegal Albanians in our country. (laughs) Yeah, it was a bit reckless. (laughs) Uh, We went to Albania to pick up this team and to come back, and I remember having a conversation with a a Christian Albanian, young college student at the time, named Arion. And Arion said to me, to the effect of, let's see if we can look at this, I've seen a lot of missionaries come to Albania for a couple of years, but after a couple of harsh winters and a little fruit in their ministries... They conclude that God has called them back to their home country. Don't we need the gospel of God more here? Now, I remember he said that as we walked over this this apartment complex that had been dilapidated. It looked like a war zone, and this was his home. And he just off the cuff said to me, Why do they come and then it's cold and it's hard and then they leave? And there's all sorts of reasons. But in his mind, he was thinking, how would God call them back when we haven't heard? And that young man, Arion, is now the mayor of Tirana, the capital of Albania. An atheist background came to faith while in the U.S., very ministry-minded when we met him, and I think has drifted over time, but I, I follow him on Instagram. <laughs> it's just hard to read all the Albanian. I, Albanian's rusty. <laughs> in Nepal. I was in Nepal with Dr. Lewis Carter. Many of you may know Lewis and Ann Carter. And I remember I had this time where we were in a, in a clinic there, and there was this man who suffered from leprosy. I didn't think leprosy was still around, but it is. And leprosy, if you don't know, attacks the cartilage and your joints and your body. And so it's incredibly disfiguring. And this man had lost his nose, most of his ears, and his hands had shrunken down where he was basically incapable of using his hands. And there was a decision that Dr. Carter said to him at the bed as he was doing this assessment of him He he said, we only have time and resources for one surgery. We can either fix your hand or your nose. There's a choice. (laughs) 
And I'm thinking, without a beat, he says, my nose. Because he could then engage in the world again. He could then go out of his hibernation. He could then be received and accepted and the the social scorn would be removed because there's pockets. (laughs) What a choice. And those words would haunt me to this day. Beautifully so. Realizing choices that other people have to make that never will be in my experience, I'm certain but beautifully disruptive. And in China, I'm gonna show you a picture of a young man. Xiao Wang was his name, and Xiao Wang is in an orphanage that is in Shenzhen, China, just across the border from Hong Kong. My wife leads a team of people every other Saturday to go into China and to love on these orphans, state-run, special-needs orphanage to love on them for two hours and then get back on the bus and go to the border and get on the train and go through immigration. It's an eight-hour ordeal to spend two hours with kids. It's wholly inconvenient. My wife's tank is filled when she does this. I am destroyed. (laughs) I don't ever want to go, but I'm always glad I did. But Xiao Wang here was a young boy that sat in the corner. He's on his bed as you see him. And I don't know if you can tell, but he's got a piece of paper that he is just flicking back and forth. And I asked the workers, what's his story? What is going on? And they explained to me that they were, he was found in a trash dump. Presumed to have had some drug treatment, sniffing glue, something, but uh, he was at this point unable to speak. And because he was in a trash dump, he bonded with trash. So at Christmas, when we go and take stuffed animals, uh, Xiao Wang will take and rip across the tag, rip apart the tag. And rather than keeping the stuffed animal, he throws it away because what is that? And he bonds with the paper. He doesn't respond to touch or eye contact, nothing. He sits there and flicks paper. I mean, the level of tragedy and horror, right? You can't unsee it. But it beautifully reminds me that there's a world in need And that we have an answer and we have hope and we have hands and feet and we have resources and ways to to soothe pain and to meet needs and to bring the gospel. And that God has said we are his ambassadors. Wow. We represent God in dark places, in boardrooms, in dramatic, horrific situations and in the mundane that location is not always the issue but a perspective to say, God, I want to see you. I want to be used by you. I want to be beautifully disrupted. I welcome inconvenience. Not because it makes me more committed or because you would love me more because grace has covered it all but because I see you in ways I otherwise wouldn't. 
We do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for that city that is to come. With our eyes fixed on our eternity, with a keen reminder of the fact that our life is but a blip on this timeline of time, that we are entrusted, challenged, implored. We are blessed to be able to be the light of the world, to represent him and to go where others won't go, to care where others will not care. And it is messy by definition, but it's good. When the Sudanese fellowships first started meeting in this church, it was beautifully messy. I was the one people would go to with complaints most of the time, and there was one particular Sunday that I just didn't know what to do because we had at that time, I don't know, 30 or 40 Sudanese. Many of them were coming in with tribal scarring on their faces and freshly traumatized and resettled to Memphis. And we were delighted as a church to welcome them in, but talk about clash of culture. And there was a a woman sitting right behind us in the hallway on those red nail-studded Settees, do you remember? (laughs) And she whipped up her shirt and started breastfeeding (laughs) right around 9.30. (laughs) And we don't do that. (laughs) But she does that. (laughs) And you could just see people walking by, like guarding their children and running to Sunday school. And she's just feeding her kid. And it's messy. Ma'am, could you cover? We've got a place for that. I mean, what do you do, right? I mean, there's, there's no right answers, and there's, there's no guidelines necessarily, but I thought, this is great. We need to wrestle with these things. But we need to understand other people, other values. We need to accommodate in ways that we never imagined accommodating. We know hospitality in Memphis, but breastfeeding on the red couch, you don't do that. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> but these are good things, aren't they? Because so much of our life gets predictable, routine, manageable. We know where we're going, how we're doing it. We engage with people that don't challenge our values, that don't make us uncomfortable, but we don't always find Christ in those moments. It's only when we say, I wanna be there. I wanna go outside the camp. I want to be radical. I wanna be different. I don't want to have this predictable life that status quo will give me that I will avoid this gravitational pull to simply do things same way over and over again. And that's the call of mission. It's to be so enamored with mission, of being used, of being purposeful, that will say, I'll go outside the camp. I may not ever leave Memphis to do that, but I'll be with difficult people I'll be in dangerous settings. I'll be in dirty places because there is a beautiful, redemptive thing that God does in me when that happens. May we go where he is.
outside the camp. Father, we thank you for your word. We 